Hey, my name is Julie Leone and this podcast is called What's Your Thing? This is where I have conversations with people about their passions, ideas, pastimes, missions or lifestyle that I find inspiring. I hope you do too. Hi, it's Julie here on another episode of What's Your Thing? And today I'm talking to Harriet Sams. And this is kind of a minor miracle that we're both in the same room with no children. We've attempted this about 97 times. So we're both feeling really... So welcome, Harriet. It's really good to be here. <laughs> yeah. So I met, I heard, I am I'm a member and Harriet's a member of the Climate Psychology Alliance. And I've done two of their workshops called Through the Door. And they're kind of very facilitated. There's not really much content, but it creates a space for people to about how they feel about transitioning into a different kind of world with climate um, care at the centre of that. And so Harriet was facilitating the last one and that's where we connected. So Harriet, and we've made it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> no children around. Uh, the, the joys of lockdown though. It's been tricky, hasn't it? It has been tricky and it's just really good to be here. And I tell you, the peace and quiet is lovely. <laughs> I've got some work. Done. Oh, Harriet, what's your thing? Well, my thing, thank you very much for, for allowing me on. Um, my thing is archaeotherapy, ecotherapy. Um, I, I, I'm a, a workshop teacher and um, part time lecturer, um, which is sort of what I do. And that was where we met when um, I was doing something like that for, for the Climate Psychology Alliance. Um, and what I, my work really um, is about sort of helping people to connect to the earth, really. So ecotherapy is, is basically um, the earth does the healing. The earth is the container within which the person, the participant, the client can go and, and find their own relationship to, to whatever it is that the earth is, is bringing to them. And I literally just sort of guide them and facilitate them and, and help them feel held. Um, but I'm currently... Um, I, I'm a, a, a mentor for the for the order of o bards, ovates, and druids as well. So I do quite a lot of um, spiritual mentoring, um, but um, and I do rituals, and I'm a celebrant as well for people who want to um, to mark parts of their lives. So it could be the, the the standard stuff like weddings and baby naming and things, but also the more intimate, personal things like divorces. Um, or changing of jobs, or you know, with COVID, it could well have well be something like changing of health um, or anything like that. So, my work really is is tries to hold all of those things together within the container, which is Earth Connection. Whoa, that's loads there for, from Druidry to what was it? Arche, uh, what was the big word? Archaeotherapy. 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 Okay, but. First of all, let's go back to what you said about, um, you know, working with clients in nature and nature, holding them. And I'm kind of curious about if I was your client, what would what what would you do with me? <laughs> well, well, ecotherapy is, is so broad as well. It can be something as simple as, a, a, you know, walk and talk in the in a park or it could be. Uh, you know horticultural therapy or just sitting in a garden or pruning the roses um, where there's a there's a reflexive experience going on and, and 
the, the participant is having a direct relationship with the earth and that, that me as the therapist in, you know, in inverted commas, is really just holding that, that space. Um, and it's, um, it really depends on what you're bringing as, as well. Because some of the, one of the things that I've been doing for, for over a decade is working with a charity called Radical Joy for Hard Times. And they deliberately do possibly one of the more challenging aspects of ecotherapy, which is taking people to wounded sites so, for instance, an old munitions depot or an old um, coal mine or, um, you know, some, a, a, a fly tipping site or something and working with them, you know, uh, in a way that opens up them to what they're experiencing. What, what are you really feeling right now? Why, what does this place mean to you? What's, what's, being, what's being told to you by this place? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Little frog. And then the intimacy of getting to know that place. So it's it's holding that that person, that group of people as they go and they look and they explore. And so they don't just see it as a as a you know responsive. Oh my goodness, this is a mess. This is a danger. This is you know it's okay. Let's spend some time exploring and being curious, being curious about the actual space itself. And then when we return, we we make something. So, so it, it's really weaves in environmental art therapy and things like that. So we make something with what we find there. And as we do so, we're, we're not only, we try, we try to speak or express ourselves in a way that the land is helping us to make sense of some things inside us. Um, and then at the end, we've made something, something collectively, collaboratively. And then we have an invitation to um, speak. How do you feel now? What's what's coming up for you now about this place? And it can be extremely transformative. And what's really powerful about something like that in in terms of ecotherapy is that it's it's asking people not to to fix. And I think that's 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 what's really special and rich about um, about ecotherapy and, and archaeotherapy, um, which perhaps we'll talk about as well, which is it's not about it's not about needing to make things change or better. It's about learning to to sort of really appreciate with our senses what's what's right there, right there, what's happening right now, which often then moves into action. You know, so petitioning or talking to your MP or, you know, whoever is in charge of that land, seeing if you can tidy it up. But the process itself is separate from that. That's really interesting because when you started describing that, in my head, I had a picture of, kind of if I were your client, then it would be me that was being, um, I don't know, it's going to use the word fixed, but I know you said not fixed, but it would be me that would be being supported or healed but actually you've just described it as a two-way process that it's me being healed whilst being with land and not necessarily taking action to heal the land but I suppose it sounds when I think about it it sounds sounds like you're gonna explore the wounds of the land and yourself in order to live with those did I, did I get that that's exactly it I, and it's a it's a really interesting shift of perspective, which I think right now in the climate crisis that we're in, these ecological, multiple ecological derangement crises that we've got right now, which is how do we sit with not being able to fix things? Yeah. And, you know, really, um, that's a real challenge for people. 
because they see it on the macro scale and they, they think that it has to be this huge sort of energetic push in order to make any sort of difference. But when with ecotherapy, when you make it very localized, very personalized, um, and they have a relationship with that one piece of land, then they realize that any action that, that, that comes subsequently is, is guided by the land itself, is guided by something that becomes quite intimate. Um, and that's, that can be very, very powerful. And of course, it, it is both healing for the land and for the person. And as you say, it's, it's a sort of symbiotic kind of, yeah. kind of healing that happens. Which of course is, is what it is, isn't it? We are, we are part of that net of life. And um, I'm just thinking about my own garden. So I came upon the Climate Psychology Alliance last year in the first lockdown where I was feeling like drawn, drawn to being more listening to the, uh, the environment. That was really bad English. <laughs> um, and I, I just remember being in the garden and just feeling like, oh, I haven't got to know my garden at all. And, um, you know, I'm not brutal with it. I don't put pesticides on or anything like that. But this year, I think what it told me last year is, do you really need to cut all of our grass? Could you just leave a bit more um and could you uh, and so this year that's what i've done and it was really satisfying to see wildflowers growing but also i'm noticing we've got more kind of butterflies and flies earlier in the season so i guess is that a little snapshot of what you're talking about oh how beautiful hmm. oh that's that's just absolutely yeah it's beautiful and i think that, that we don't know until we've had that conversation with the land and then, you know, it could be really surprising. It could be actually what you notice is a little hedgehog run. And so it's like, ah, this isn't about the rubbish dump that I thought I was coming to see. This is about the hedgehogs sharing this land. So maybe there's more to this story. And, and, because, and when, we, when we find that we become quite interconnected with everything, it becomes a, um, a place for, for understanding and instead of, being sort of horrified and turning away from a place that's that's difficult we turn towards it and on the biggest scale of all the truth of the situation is that more and more of those kind of landscapes are coming onto this planet and so if we think about it are we going to just keep turning our backs or at some point we have to become more adept at the practice of turning towards Mm -hmm. And instead of having such a visceral kind of, I must fix this kind of feeling, it's, this is still my land. This is still where I grew up. You know, now it's got a supermarket on, on it, but actually that, that was my meadow and that was where, that was a tree that I used to put my den in or, you know, and these places are becoming more and more real in our landscapes. Um, so it's a, it's a skill and it needs to be practiced, um, which, is, which, is why, which is why we do it really. And is that where so you're doing a PhD, aren't you? In archaeo, the word I can't say, archaeo. Why can't I say it? I... Yeah, you just stick therapy on the end. Archaeotherapy. I can yeah. say it last time we spoke, but not this. Yeah, so tell me about, because it sounds like archaeo for me is old. Yeah. Tell me yeah, a bit more and, about that. Yeah, so, so in the sense of it sort of takes that um, concept of like uh, the human sort of, damage or the human changing of our landscape 
Um, and it is, I'm looking specifically at not only ancient sites, healing sites that we know of, you know, things like Stonehenge, everybody knows about, or, or um, you know, mystical, numinous kind of places that we can go to and with guidance, we can undertake certain things that can help us with our mental health and our, and our sense of understanding the ancestors, which actually I just think in the West, we do a, a, such a, a disservice to, we, we, we honestly all think that we just came out of the ground, fully formed. It's, yeah, it, it, I don't it's, even have a sense of um, indigeneity, I suppose. You know, when you look to the Americas or you look to, you know, Australia or New Zealand and we talk about their indigenous people, mm. um, but, I, you know, I, I don't have any sense. You're in France, aren't you, as we're having this conversation. And I'm in, I suppose, Wales, I feel like there's a little bit of it. But I don't know. So can you tell us about, you know, yeah. indigeneity and what that means for, for the Brits and the French? Yeah, it's always, it's, it's such an interesting thing because it's, it's a sense of um, perspective as well. Because there's a lot of sort of new world people in Australia and America who look to Britain especially and think wow you've got so much indigeneity you know you're you're the sort of the mother country kind of thing um but it's very different when when they're um I think that's a really important aspect of of my work which is reconnecting people in, in Britain and the British Isles Northern Europe really with their their sense of of belonging um and I'm I'm very cautious about um knowing um, the ancestral line and the connection to our landscape is not the same as having healed well ancestors all the way through. We've got, we've got lessons to learn when we look back in time as well. And there's no halcyon time in the past where everything was great and everybody got on. You know, these things are fluid and being, being a human is part of being part of that line. So a lot of my work is, is about it inviting people back into their own sense of belonging and perhaps that's a, maybe a less um, contentious word than indigeneity because yeah. I do know that people feel that there's an appropriation to it however people who have studied under um, Native American First Nation um, elders the elders will say to the Brits where do you come from where does your belonging come from? And then when you work that out, then you'll understand what it truly means to be of a place. And so, yeah, the work that I, I'm doing is, is looking very much more at, at um, practical and realistic ways of offering that kind of, uh, that kind of way of connecting in sacred landscapes. I like that idea of um, belonging. I, it was funny because I did an interview with um, someone called from Richmond. She's on another podcast. And I said, oh, I get a sense of longing when I listen to her. And then someone listened to that podcast and said, oh, belonging, you know, that sense of wanting to be belong. And I suppose last year I definitely felt like I belonged to my garden mm -hmm. a bit more, even though I've lived here for 20 years. And I'm thinking, that, uh, you know, I've attended sweat lodges. I've, you know, done two feet swirling. I've appropriated lots of other cultural rituals and practices mm. so I'm not sure how many um Welsh English Irish cultural practices I'm even aware of so is that where your ritual work comes in I mean yeah but don't worry about the sweat lodges they uh there's evidence there's archaeological evidence that uh, we were using some sort of hothouse 
um, oh. since the late Neolithic um, in Ireland and down in Somerset and then of course in Orkney. So it looks like using intense heat um, in, a, in a, some sort of domed space is, is almost universal. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so that's exactly a really good example of how to bring archaeology and archaeological knowledge um, back up. I mean, I, I don't know how much you want me to go into it, but, but one of the major problems of the way that we see our in, inheritance and our heritage is the um, antiquarian movement in the sort of late 19th century, early 20th century, where rich people would go and just sort of boil, I call it boiled egg, the, the boiled egg, um, you know, when you've got a burial mound and they just literally scoop out the middle and go straight in for the, the riches and the pots and the golds and, and the bones. Rich people were doing that in the antiquarian sort of era. Um, and that was a period in time where things like the Royal Society and sciencey kind of stuff was getting, you know, reductionism and Darwinism and all of those sort of things were becoming really um, scientifically robust. And archaeology wanted to, well, um, antiquarianism at the time wanted to be seen as a scientifically robust. And so anything that sort of had even a remote whiff of numinousness or spiritual or ritual was very much you know thrown out and the very wonderful robust archaeological processes that have come up in the 20th century um, that that influence how we excavate a site how we understand um you know taxonomy and all of that sort of stuff um has never wanted to look at what what they've lost along the way and it's only really in the last sort of 20 years where strong work has been done into trying to bring back the magic into British archaeology. Um, so that, that's so, I mean, Sharon Blackie is someone that I read loads last year and she's, um, uh, you know, someone that is really interested in, in the story of our, of our, of our isles. But I, what I also love is the fact you're doing a PhD in something which is on the edges of um, what we can study. So, how do you study this stuff? Well, I'm only I'm only hard enough. In. <laughs> how do you you know tell us about it? Because it's hard enough, isn't it? Doing a PhD is a labour of love, mm. um, which no, you know, it's a lot of work, isn't it? So, how, what what's the plan? What what what's your question? What are you thinking? Yeah. So so at the moment, uh, as I mean, literally four months in. So I'm in what's called the literature review, which is actually a really beautiful part of it, which is looking at the, the, the sort of mental health aspects of it, the psychology aspects of it, the things that have been done before. So, for instance, veter vet veterans archaeology and what's helping that? people. So um, war. Um, ex-soldiers who go on archaeological digs um, or do sort of outdoor kind of cultural related things to help them with their um, recovery so there's that that side of it and, and some um, there's been some beautiful projects like the human henge project um, with my two supervisors did in the Stonehenge and Avebury area in 20, 2018 I think it was where um, some mental health uh, people with mental health issues um, came and they did um, I think 10 days of different exercises so drumming storytelling sleeping overnight 
all sorts of you know pilgrimages in, in the dark and really beautiful um seemingly kind of shamanic in inverted commas activities um and then you know having a look to see how that how that affected them did it benefit them did it make them feel good you know what sort of co social cohesion or personal reflection did they experience um so working on that there's a lot more to be done because potentially if if i can you know get the research together um, to show that um, this is actually something that could really benefit people with with mental health um, issues, um, especially looking at sort of climate anxieties and things like that. I think this this could potentially be really helpful to people. On a um, on a on a personal level, my I think my my whole life has sort of moved towards this merging of. The, the earth speaking, the land speaking, and then my own archaeology. My first degree was archaeology and Italian, actually. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was always right from a very little girl wanting to know, well, just being connected. Just, I really felt connected to the land. And what does that a, mean to people? You know, how so there's a visceral experience. What, what does, can you remember your first moment of connection? Or, or a you know a, a bright moment of connection from your youth. I think I think when I was about, I must have been ten or eleven, and uh, we were living in Cumbria in the north of England, and um, these students just knocked on the door and they said, "Is that your field next door?" And my mum said, "No, no, it belongs to the farmer." And they said, "Oh, because we're the, we're from a." university I can't remember what it was and we're going up there to dig we're doing a student dig because there's an iron age well up there and of course I had no idea what an iron age anything was at that point but I was like wow there's their students and they're, they're doing archaeology and so I used to go up there and just watch because it was one excuse to go and traipse around other people's fields which was fabulous but I was just absolutely fascinated that you could do this as a job you know you could all of these sort of weird and numinous kind of ruins that I was exploring as a kid all of a sudden I thought wow you can actually learn about these and you could get paid for this and so that that was really powerful for me and I think it set me on a it set me on a a really personal journey of connecting to the land definitely and what's With, it meant for you tell me about the meaning of that journey for you and where it's taken you yeah, so so I would I then became an archaeologist um, and I dug in Ireland. Strangely, I went to University of Glasgow um, and then I dug in Ireland for around about three years. And I was very, very, very lucky. I was in the Boyne Valley, which I, maybe your listeners will know, which is where Newgrange is. So the Boyne, Boyne was the fertility goddess of Ireland, you know, very powerful period of um, of Irish history, which I was digging. Um, and then sort of, you know, wended my way around my world um, until I decided I wanted to come back to Britain and, and be an archeologist again. I'd, I'd gone to live in, in, in New Zealand actually. And I was a probation officer, which is completely random. But um, yeah, so then I went, I went back into archeology span and then I became, when I had my first child, I became a adult ed teacher in Italian, which, as I said, was my first degree, and and then subsequently an archaeology course, which I put together. But then what was happening for me on a personal level is 
I was, I, I didn't, I, I still had that really strong archeological numinous experience in my heart, that connection to the earth, which I was feeling more and more detached from in the, in the sort of professional archeological process, you know, being a field archeologist, rescuing archeology, span housing estate going on here, you know, that sort of thing was becoming quite dry and very detached from the ancestors. And um, as, I, as I was experiencing this and I was putting this course together, I realized that I was putting the course together almost like guided by the land. You know, I'd go and I'd just drive around and I'd take photos and I'd put, put these courses together. And I think it was that point when I started doing, I started joining Quakers actually, I started to become a Quaker because I needed silence and guidance into what was happening in my life. And then I joined the order of Bards, Ovates and Druids and subsequently took five or six years to become a Druid. But there was one, one moment which I've never really spoken about before. So, so it's kind of world exclusive, but um, I was, I'd, I had two children and I was, uh, I'd split up from their dad and I was having a rare time on my own. And um, I was just relaxing in the bath and a voice said to me, a female voice said, get out of the bath, go up the hill and you'll see what you will see. And I was, I was like, I'm relaxed. <laughs> I haven't got a car. I'm gonna to have to cycle to the hill and then walk up the hill and what's going on. And I'd rather lie in the bath. And this voice again said, get out the bath, go up the hill and you'll see what you'll see. And so I was like, right, okay, I'm getting out of the bath. So I got out of the bath and cycled. It was about 20 minute cycle. It's not that, not that long, but, and then a walk, which took about half an hour. And then I got to the very top of the hill and it was a beautiful day, but it was one of those days which, where it was blue sky above. But as you looked across, it, it just sort of, the view disappeared into sort of mist. And um, I was just sat there and I said, okay, what's, what, what am I here for? Why am I here? And then I just heard this, um, this spray can behind me. And I thought this is very strange. This is on the Pennines in Cumbria, you know, so really absolutely no, nobody around on the top of the hills. And I looked behind me and there was a young man with a spray can and he was spraying the ground. And uh, I went over to him and I said, hello, what are you doing? You know, you're not dressed for walking. What, what are you here for? And he was dressed in some, some sort of suit. And uh, he said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm putting a mark where we're gonna put a mobile phone mast. And I was like, oh, that's a Bronze Age burial cairn. And he said, I, what is it? And I said, yes, it is. It's a Bronze Age burial cairn. And he said, oh, well, we've, we've been told to put it here because it's the best place, because you can see it from, from the largest area down, down around. And I said, yes, that's why, the bronze, that's why our ancestors put it there, because it's really obvious. And he said, well, I'll have to check. And I said, right, OK, I'll check. And I then emailed the county archaeologist who... Um, who I had badgered before about a couple of things. And I said, it, there's, a, there's a report, it's an antiquarian, and the antiquarians come to my rescue. Thanks, antiquarians. Um, there's an antiquarian report about this sur survey that they did at this top sort of area of this Pennine. 
um, and nothing had been done since. And it wasn't on the archeological records and it wasn't marked on the OS maps or anything. There was one further up that was marked, but this one wasn't. So I emailed the, the county archeologist with all this information. And I said, they're trying to put a mobile phone mast up here. You can't let them do this. Um, toing and froing. And it turns out that um, they, moved, they moved it slightly and they put just rivets into the ground rather than a big concrete slab that they were going to put. And I just, I think it, that, was, that was that moment when I just realized that there was a, there was a soul, there was a, there was a voice of my ancestors and the land calling me because I had the knowledge and I had the access, the ability to get up there and I had the means to do something about it. Yeah, because if I'd have had that phone call, I wouldn't have known that was an Iron Age burial mound and I wouldn't have known about the antiquarians and yeah. 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 And it's, it's, it, it's, it's really staggering to me that it was just a voice in my head. And did and, you actually, because I've heard people say that before, like, is it a voice out loud? Is it a voice in your head? Do you recognise it? What's it like? It was, it was like, um, you know, I don't know, I will, I, trying to not assume but it's sort of it's sort of like the rambling thoughts that you, that are there usually it's not like it's a different voice it's not like this booming voice of god or anything like that it's it was a voice that that was just clear and because it because it was that clear and it came with a feeling it came with a feeling of of clarity you know, when you're, you can hear something, you hear someone talking and you just have that, that em the empty feeling and you're just listening. It's, it was that feeling of like, yes, that's, that's mm. the right thing. Like you've tuned into it, like on exactly. the radio dial, that's, that's the, yeah. Yeah. And you're using the word numinous enough and I kind of, I kind of know what that word means and I also don't. How do you, what do you mean by numinous? I think I mean... Again, it, maybe it's a numinous word, but I, I mean that thing, that feeling that is inexplicable, that feels mysterious and and otherworldly, which is is related to our sense of of wonder and not knowing. Um, that 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 sits in that place where we don't want to know and we don't need to know. Uh, you know, I mean, for instance, where I grew up in Cumbria, as I said, and a, a numinous place for me would be um, a quarry up the road. It, it's just a quarry, but it, um, I'd go there just as a kid and I'd just sit and I'd just feel, you could see the old quarry marks from the, from the people, you know, hand picking. And there was just something other about that space. Or you, you know, can it really with, you know, with bells and whistles, like when you go to Stonehenge on the summer solstice, you know, that, that kind of inexplicable feeling of wonder and connection. Yeah, okay. Now I kind of, I can resonate with that. Like I do a big walk that, I, that I've again done for years and years, but more during the lockdowns and there's a, I passed the owl tree in owl wood and I have to stop and stare and it's definitely walking through his wood. And then if I'm lucky, there's horse field and sometimes there's rabbit, 
you know the rabbits and that sense of you know i'm passing through their land saying hello and when i go through owl wood it really does feel like going into a cathedral and the owl isn't always there but it does make me quiet and down slow down stop and sort of stare yeah that, is that it that's sort oh, of completely mm. yeah it is it is it's it's it, and it's it's it'll change for whoever is having that connection with whatever it is and, and and that's what's so amazing about anything sort of eco earth ecologically human related which is each person has their own experience you can't you can and the, the the old adage you can lead a horse to water but but if the horse doesn't notice it's water it's not going to drink and it's the same with ecotherapy is that if i could i could plan a route and go oh this bush i'm sure they'll love this bush this bush is going to be really meaningful for them it's got thorns and that'll represent difficulties and look at some blossom and that'll represent burgeoning possibilities i'm sure they'll have a really strong experience with this bush so I'll lead them to the bush and then they'll turn around and they'll go, crikey, I've just had such a powerful memory when I look at that nettle. <laughs> and that's when you go, okay, so let's talk about that. And that's, and that's that's the sort of where my numinous isn't your numinous. Yeah, yeah. But no, the feeling, there's actually Francis Weller, who um, I don't know whether you've heard of, but Francis Weller is um, uh, a philosopher who works very much with grief work and his um, The Wild Edge of Sorrow is a beautiful book. Um, and he was, we were co-interviewing um, on the Radical Joy for Hard Times um, Global Day of Mourning that we did in January. And he said, um, all of the doors to grief are different, you know, or, or, or it could be wonder or whatever. But when we go through that door, the room is the same. And that really resonates with me because, you know, he's speaking from grief, you know, my mum dies or, you know, COVID or, or, or we lose our job or whatever. And, and we're worried and we go through and the door, but and the doors are different, but the room is the same. And I, I feel that that numinousness is very similar. Mm. And I get that. And here, so here's a, so like we're lucky you and I, cause I, we clearly have, Places where we can, you like you're talking about the Pennines, I'm on the Shropshire borders. Um, how's that, how does it work for people in cities, mm. you know, with concrete and where the only plant they might see is the, kind of what they see is the weed coming through the crack in the pavement or the ivy growing up the lamppost? Or, can it, is it possible to do it in that kind of urban environment? Yeah, and, and in a way it's, it's, COVID and the lockdown has, has helped us radically reassess how we offer um, urban ecotherapy. Um, and some of the gifts are so much more powerful in a way, because if somebody like, I, I, um, I was working with a group um, last sort of April, May, June, and uh, one, one woman, she was an American woman and she was, in a flat for literally 12 weeks or something, whatever it was. And she watched a, a tree that she'd in the car park that she could see out of her window. She watched it go from nothing, you know, no, no, uh, no signs of anything in the winter time through burgeoning through spring into, into summer through, you know, the new leaves and the cherry blossom or whatever type of tree it was. 
and and she said I had never noticed that tree before and now it's all I can think about I you know I wake up I open the window open the window and I go and I look at that tree and then it, you know in the evening I see I see it as the sun setting and I'm just in love with this tree and so there are so many possibilities with really honing in on that particular sense that only perhaps as you say only a little bit of grass in the pavement means to someone what's very interesting is how that how we become very connected to the weeds actually growing in the pavement and stuff like that and so when the council then come along and start spraying it yeah. people get really quite wow i never had this deep connection to this other living being before and now i feel it and it's it's that sense of um investment i'm invested in this now yeah. How do, I can't turn that back off. Um, and and I so guess that, that does need to be managed quite well and, and yeah. guided, definitely. Because that's, I guess, how we're all going to make the changes that we need to make in order to live in a more sustainable world. So I drive through this beautiful valley on a way to visit friends and it's got a river, a little river running around through it and it's got steep banks and, and I didn't... I trees but I couldn't tell you what kind of trees but beautiful just really twin you know dappled sunlight imagine it as pretty as it could be and then obviously lockdown I didn't make that journey and so three four months later I made the journey and someone has cut down all of the trees now these are on steep slopes so it there's you can't grow anything you, you can't graze it and of course the soil has already eroded into the river and clogged up the river and honestly I felt sick I and I can't even now talking about it I feel it's really upset because yeah. I just yeah just <laughs> and I know you know who knows I you know it, it kind of it seems to me that if whoever cut down those trees had had that relationship they wouldn't have been able to cut down the trees yeah yeah, yeah. and th this would be perhaps the point where I would suggest go to that place and sit there sit with it and talk speak to it about how you feel mm. and, and make something from the broken branches that are left or whatever it is that you can find you know be be careful obviously because if it's on a steep hill but that sense of being in relationship to that place still because as as i said this this danger that we have of of something happens it's no longer pleasurable for us and we just turn away but then we turn our attention to somewhere else and then that becomes no longer pleasurable and we turn away and we find somewhere else and it just goes on and on and on and we end up losing we end up orphaning ourselves from belonging and um those places become orphaned from human consciousness as well yeah. i so, get that that's like you're kind of walking past the injured yeah, uh, you know, my experience in India where there's so many kind of children that are disfigured or with leprosy and it's in order almost to walk along the street at one point, I felt like I had to look away. And, and of course, that's not where compassion is, is it? Compassion is to move towards. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a very interesting point. And, you know, how did you manage that? Because what I would imagine is a very strong urge to fix comes up. Yeah, yeah, of course, rescue. Yeah, yeah. and then the then with that a sense of helplessness, 
because mm -hmm. I can't. And then um, some cognitive dissonance probably about to try and make sense of that tension about I feel, you know, lucky, rich, overly healthy, and some sense of guilt and shame around I have this and they don't have that and I can't fix it. So some sort of disassociation, I guess, probably happened. Mm, gosh. Which I guess is how we are, isn't it, with the climate, is we can't fix it. We feel overwhelmed. So rather than look at our garden and our little hedgehog, as you say, our hedgehog paths, we turn away. Yeah. And so it sounds um, like your work is to do with turning people back. Back towards it. Whatever it is. So whether it's a decimated riverbed mm. or, or, or a tree in a car park, yeah. it, it's to turn towards it. It is. It's to turn towards it for, for all of those reasons, which is compassion, which goes both ways. You know, you still have a relationship with that place, even though it's no longer beautiful. It's it's disfigured. It's like, how, how can I be in this relationship where um, my my sort of privileged urge to fix is is there? I'm not going to leave it but it's just not going to be part of what I'm doing in this relationship right now. Um, and that's, that is, it is difficult, but it's, I think it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. And when we start to feel disconnected, it's important to keep going back yeah. because I had I, interesting. I mean, one of the things about France, I love France very much, but one of the things is that they are radical choppers of everything. They, they, you know grass grows like that and they'll chop it and trees and I found this absolutely beautiful little spring that was surrounded by um, beech trees and it was just really beautiful and uh, I loved it and um, and then I, I went for a walk one day and somebody had just come and chopped all the trees oh. down and the, then some of them were stacked and some of them were just lying and what was stacked what was weird was there was this very beautiful blackened stump that was about I don't know four foot high that I th I'm not sure if it was alive or not but it was blackened it was kind of it must have had some sort of bacterial thing on it but, but they'd half chopped it and it was lying and so I was I went through this sort of whole disbelief couldn't understand why trying to work out why why is it that I see it, the world this way and others see it a different way all of that was going on but it was like as I quieted my mind and just sat in that space it was like the earth and the land and the spring and the trees said we're still here we're still here have that relationship with me keep keep being here keep being present and we'll see what happens Oh, you see, that feels like a really big thing for me to kind of, um, yeah, because I have turned away. When I drive past that place, I find it kind of viscerally upsetting mm. to look at. So the next time I will stop and listen. And I am recognising, even as I say that, how there's, I don't want to. <laughs> but, mm. And it's, tell me a bit more about, you said about your, the, the Druid. Yeah, I, again, I, I didn't get the full title. So how does that all fit into this conversation? Yeah, so that sort of comes on the back of the the disillusionment I was feeling with, with field archaeology and, and um, um, commercial archaeology, uh, where it, it was still very tricky to feel that kind of connection 
to the ancestors of the land within the archaeological kind of bubble. Um, it, it's really great for process and preservation and protection and restoration and all those sort of things. Um, but when it comes to the spirit and soul of the land, it, it sort of doesn't have it. So I, 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 that's why I sort of joined Quakers as well, really, in that kind of period, because I was trying to get back to that voice. That voice had happened and I was trying to find some sort of human understanding of, of my indigeneity of sort of Northern European Britishness um, without going elsewhere. Um, and and I, because having been an archeologist, I was really keen to keep that. I was really keen to not, um, you know, go elsewhere. Um, and I found the uh, order of bards, ovates and druids online. And um, yeah, it was, it was just beautiful because they start off very much telling you this, you know, Neo-Druidry neo is 350 years old, so, you, so you're, you're in a good place, you know, we're, we're well established and let's deal with where we sit with the past and, and our, um, any kind of evidence that we've got of spirituality before Christianity and during Christianity and um, sort of hedge witchery and, and, you know, all of the sort of things that have, that have stayed part of our folklore and our understanding of earth connection all the way through. Um, and I loved that. I really loved that because it's, it feels like it's based on, um, on solid ground. And I needed, I needed to feel like I was on solid ground and that I wasn't escaping. I was trying to find the, tr I was trying to find more human meaning to that voice that I heard. Um, it's and interesting not you say, solid ground but some people would think that anything to do with druidry was opposite to solid ground so can you what do you mean by solid ground so that knowing that it's it's um it's based as best it can be on its own heritage so you know 350 years of of this kind of um uh starting off with with you know, people who were looking at Western esoteric things, uh, esoteric practices and going over to the East as well and um, Buddhism and um, yoga and the sutras and bringing them over into the, into the West, but also very much earth-based connection um, and whatever we can learn from what's still here. Um, I mean, the Irish Bardic, uh, colleges still existed until the 18th century, I think, if, if that's correct. So they were still teaching bardi bardistry of some sort in, in Ireland up until quite quite relatively recently. Um, and the Eisteddfod traditions of Wales, which I'm sure you'll, you'll know about, which mm -hmm. have been really, really important with, for the um, sort of the reinvigoration of the Welsh identity in recent times. And so in that sense, it feels like it's a cultural um, inclusivity of our past recognizing that it's not a fossil of the past it's 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 not interpreting the past and sort of reinterpreting it it's it's building on its own sense of its place and why for me and, sorry why, why does it all matter you know like why does it matter that we connect to our past mm. to our roots to you know our archaeological roots but also our spiritual archaeological roots but why does it matter do you think for you 
I think for me it matters because I think my, all my life I've it's mattered um, and I can't see how it doesn't. I think what's going to be interesting with this research is how relevant it, it can be as, as a way to give healing of some sort or therapeutic um, practices in to a certain extent and that that's an in, that's a really interesting kind of place as you say it's right on the edge of, of um, ecotherapy and archaeology and mental health services so in that sense it's really going to be interesting to see what happens why does it why does it matter I think more than anything it really matters that we become connected deeply connected to the place that we're in and we and we feel that belonging again whether it's from learning about our ancestors like it was for me, it was really important to feel that, or whether it's from just small practices of going out into your garden and just sitting in it and, you know, connecting to its, to the earth. What kind of colour earth have you got? You know, is it gritty? Is it loamy? Is it dark? Is it is it yellowy? You know, all of those questions, like, where do I sit? What kind of rocks are underneath my house? Where's the nearest spring? Where would my ancestors have got their spring before we had, um, you know, water pipes, piping water into our, into our land, into our houses? And th those sort of questions will be more and more important as maybe not in our generation, but, but as, as things move on, becoming closely connected to the food that we produce and the way that humans interact with their land I think will become more and more important as time goes on for sure. And has it changed you you know this journey from the 10 year old up the hill with the student running around fields it's the mast on the top of the hill like what difference has it made to your life this this path of this journey? Um, in a way it's it's maybe not changed my life in a way it's bringing it back and i'm at this point hereby completely recognizing the the privilege that i'm on in as a as a middle-aged white woman who can who can spend that time connecting deeply to that question that was posed as a child i know that that's a real privilege but um it feels more and more that the question has to be answered and this is a good time to do it because because what's being potentially asked of me is to help us find what what seems to be everybody's going elsewhere everybody's looking for answers in in traditional indigenous cultures in other parts of the world and this is us this is where we come from and i think the whole Thing about looking at wounded places. This is this is really critical when it talk when we're talking about our ancestors and and where we come from. When we look at a wounded place in the land, be it a coal mine or or whatever, and we turn towards it, it's to say we're doing this. This is happening. Or this 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 culture that I'm in is doing this, and I'm turning towards it. It's the same with our ancestors and our colonial past and all of the things that we have to recognize that we have done to one another in, you know, since the Romans and since perhaps before the Romans. And it's about turning towards, it's about, it's about recognizing that we come from a place to a place and 
and onwards and we and we need to understand where we've come from in order to really know how we move into the future hmm. and so if your phd were to answer one thing or to bring one you know one gift to the world i'm sure phds bring many but what would have you got any idea if you had a magical wand what um you know if the voice could speak again what would, what's the thing that you would most like it to to produce or to flourish with yeah it's it's a hard one because i'm i'm still in that kind of soupy what's my question um kind of phase but the feeling is that i i want it to offer the world a chance to see the westernized world, I hasten to add. I want, the, want it to be able to be something that can be worked on for the westernized world to know that we don't need to shy away from our past. And in fact, it can be deeply therapeutic for us to look right at those things that we'd rather not look at. In our, in our landscape and in our, in our heritage as well. Hmm. But that, I think that's the standout. I think for me, the thing that I'm going to most take from the conversation is that sense of looking at the wound. Yeah. Whether that's a riverbed or whether that's, you know, I, haven't, I can't imagine being in India, but my, they're in my thoughts at the moment with everything on the news in COVID. And I can just imagine. Um, and again, even as I said, yeah, there's that feeling in my chest again of rising panic that I can't do more. Um, being with that and not turning away from it, I think is the big thing that for me makes sense of this conversation. Yeah. Is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't asked you? That you're gonna um, go off and go, oh my God, she didn't ask me about that. No, I don't, I don't, I asked, I've, I wrote this down because, I, you know, it's like, I don't know where this conversation is going to go. So I don't know what she's going to mm. ask me. But I suppose my, my final thing is, is that um, it's really important to, to connect to the land and, and our ancestors in its entirety. So imagine that we're all, we're not disconnected. We are not disconnected from the land. We are part of the ecology of this world. And that kind of, so duality doesn't doesn't exist. So we're we're really connected, and that the interbeing that that engenders in us um, helps us then look with curiosity at at the woundedness as well. You know, if you look at the analogy of a, of a family, you just you accept it all. You accept it the whole gamut of emotions and feelings, and you know, goodness and badness and and challenges, and when when we finally really find our sense of belonging then we can see that we are just a family member and that we're getting viewed from other people as well other non-beings and you know so so therein lies a, a challenge a real challenge but also a massive gift mm. and that yeah that sense the sense of connection and that kind of net but yeah i think it doesn't matter how many times i Think about that there's moments when I feel it where I kind of go oh like I've plugged in yeah. if it's in my head it's a nice idea but there's occasions when I plug in and I'm like oh <laughs> it's in my body there I am mm. and so when you reflect on this conversation as we start to kind of bring it to an end what have been the things that you want to remember for yourself 
I, I'm really grateful to you for, for offering me this time to talk and uh, yeah, asking me some questions about um, Obod, which which was, yeah, it, that's, um, that's a new thing. I, when I first started it, I mean, it's been a long time, it's about seven years now since I've done that. So when I first started it, I felt that big yes, big yes of like, this, this feels right, this feels authentic, it feels okay to me. And I feel like um, I'm being held here with, with honor for the land and for myself. Um, so yeah, just um, just looking back and thinking, well, gosh, I, I need to double check on on how things are going in in uh, in Druidry right now and how it's perceived. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, it's it's it very sounds, much a part that's of connected. Yeah, it sounds really connected to your central theme. Yeah, it is. It's it's more than a, a, anything. It's it's been five. It was five years of of in. in intense spiritual awakening training um and yeah it's it's been beautiful really beautiful uh, and in the synthesis of you know you use the word numinous and spiritual and then archaeology which is you know it is more positivistic and more rigorous and it, it you're it sounds to me like you're in that space of trying to synthesize yeah create something that brings together kind of theory and science as well as kind of spirit but also something that's hopefully going to be immensely practical you know there's the practical element of kind of mental health and war veterans and um yeah health yeah so so imagine um they're all they're all meeting in the middle and that's that's where i sit which is you know that that kind of rational positivist part of my mind needs to be satisfied as well as the the body that that lies in the bath and hears you know disembodied voices <laughs> that tell me to go and do things and and that's that's the beauty of being a human it's mm. the beauty of, of knowing that that this is this is part of my life anyway to explore that and to mm. um to meet that place mm. with my eyes open and see where it goes Oh, I like that. Meet this place with my eyes open and to see where it goes. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. We did it. We found a whole hour. I'm so glad it's been a beautiful conversation. Thank you, Harriet. You're very welcome. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Julie. Hey, it's Julie here and I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, I'd love to hear from you too if you've got a thing or a way of living or a passion that just lights you up and fills you with energy. So please do get in touch at julieleone.com if you fancy a conversation or if you're listening to this thinking, ah, I wish I could find a thing or a way of living that lights me up and fills me with energy, then get in touch and we can have a conversation about coaching or some of the ways that I might be able to support you in finding that. So all of that is at www.julieleone.com go to the contact page and drop me a note you can also see some of my books writing and coaching there um, if you've enjoyed the podcast please share it with your friends like subscribe and review it just so that other people can find it and just pick up on some of those happy vibes um, but it, thank you for joining me it's always a pleasure to do the podcast and hopefully you find something positive from them for listening to so take care speak soon see you on the next episode Thank you.